Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week we're reading the story of John the Baptist as told in John 1, 19-34. We ponder John's declaration of who he is not, as well as who he is, and we think about what it would mean to confess our own identity in the world. We talk about John's acknowledgement that he himself would not have recognized Jesus if it hadn't been for the dove descending on him, and we wonder if recognizing Jesus today might be a little more complicated than we sometimes think. And we discuss the idea of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, wrestling with what it means to call Jesus a Lamb, and what that has to do with the brokenness of both ourselves and the world. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? Hello, hello. I am okay. I think the answer to this question will be no, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Yeah. Do you know Leonard Bernstein's Candide Overture? <laughs> Amy. Okay, no. we had different childhoods. It's okay. Yeah, it's, we had very so, different childhoods. It's <laughs> so here's what's going through my head lately. That piece of music, which you should look up and listen to, is a very excellent soundtrack to Holiday Community 5Ks. Oh, I love Holiday Community 5Ks. They're, it's like, I don't know. They're just, I guess we didn't, you know, they, they weren't really around last year because people were all trying to stay away yeah. from each other, rightfully so. But I forget every time before I do them that, like, it's this combination of people who take it, like, kind of seriously. Yeah. Or like trying to win the race and people who are like dressed like animals and wearing <laughs> tattoos yeah. and like, you know, I mean, just so like yeah. these crazy, crazy things. Anyway, I was listening. I've made myself a playlist for a holiday run and it included the Candied Overture and it was a very good soundtrack. Oh, that sounds, that sounds great. That are sounds you, totally were you weird. taking it seriously or were you dressed like an animal? Or were you sort of the middle ground of? I was sort of the middle ground. I was mostly like, Hey, I can go for a run, not by myself when it's not dark out. Yeah. That sounds great. Let's do that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm not a good runner. I'm not a good runner. I just, you know. I tried to train for a marathon once and that did not go great for me. I I just can't. I don't think I can do it. No. I did my like three hour training run. I ran like 14 and a half miles and I was like, you know what? I don't think (laughs) I still got That was not my idea of a good time. more miles to go. (laughs) Like, I don't think I, I don't think this is me. (laughs) <laughs> I think yeah. it's good to recognize those moments when you're like, you know, just because the bar has been set does not mean I need to leap over every bar. That's that okay. is exactly true. That is okay. Well, last week in the Gospel of John, John set a high bar for us with the prologue, which is a sure beautiful <laughs> kind of mystical poetry. Yeah. Today we're following up with uh, John... Chapter 1, verses 19 to 34, which is basically the story of John the Baptist. So we kind of touched the ground a little more 
in this yeah, one. Yes, one yes, practical. yes, yes. Yeah. I appreciated that. I did love <laughs> yeah. the mystical poetry, but I was like, okay, well, now we get a little break. Yeah. You know, for some more narrative-y stuff. So I don't know. If, I don't know if the, I mean, we're just in the next verse from where we were last time. So I don't know if there's any like transitional background, but anything I we need I to mean, say? I, I don't think, I mean, I don't know of anything we need to say since we're just picking up in the next verse, but I think what I want to say is just to sort of take a moment to pause and appreciate how different it is to read a text in a, where you can just pick up in the next verse. Like if, if you want to love a section of scripture, this is the way to do it. Yeah. You know, not to like jump and jump and I'm not, (laughs) this is not a critique of any lectionary because that's, you know, the way it works, but what a, it, it feels so luxurious just to pick up in the verse after yeah. last time. No, that's exactly right. And I actually think that's one of the strengths of the narrative lectionary in the gospel section of the narrative lectionary yeah. is it lingers in a way that the other alternative lectionaries tend to still be kind of sporadic in their texts. Yeah. yeah. And we really do. We don't read verse for verse in the gospels, but we come a little closer so this is the, the, where John picks up after the kind of prologue that we read last time. This is John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? John confessed. He didn't deny, but confessed. I'm not the Christ. They asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? John said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? John answered, No. They asked, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make the Lord's path straight, just as the prophet Isaiah said. So this is kind of an interesting way to start a gospel. We got the prologue, right, which had this kind of mystical introduction. And then we start out with a question of identity come just right out of the gate. What do you do with that fact that this gospel really starts with a questioning of the identity, not of Jesus, who hasn't come on the scene yet, but of John. Well, I guess I have various, a lot of thoughts already coming to my head. But one of the things that really stands out to me is that it starts with like the testimony that John gives to who he is, like the idea that you testify to your own identity. Yeah. I don't know. Something like speaking what I'm fascinated by that verb. Yeah. You know, like, do we, do we testify to who we are in the world? Like speak what we are confident is true. I don't know. Like it just, it seems like that it it seems like there could have just been a, you know, they asked him and he answered, Yeah, but it's, (laughs) it's already like clearly a a bigger, a bigger issue. Like tell us what you know about who you are. Yeah. Or what you believe you know about who you are. Yeah. That's but I think it, it. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I, th- I think it also sort of the fact that it's Jewish leadership that goes to him and sort of starts with the questioning. I don't know if it quite feels adversarial, but I, I, I don't know. Yeah, the fact that it, that it starts with a question that comes from Jewish leadership feels, feels f- like it frames the story in an important way. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's right. And so we've got this question of identity. And I mean, you understand, like, if you are the religious leaders of the time, and you've got this person who's out sort of declaring something that you don't quite know what to do with, like, you need some categories 
for what yeah. for what to do with it. And so this question, like, who are you? Like, how do you fit into this story? Yeah, it's a completely reasonable question. Yeah, and I, yeah. I think it can be read as adversarial. You yeah. know, like, who do you think you are? But it could also be just read as like informational, like, mm-hmm. you know, like many Jews at the time were open to the possibility that there was some kind of a Messiah who was For coming sure. into the world. And so when you've got people who are either claiming to be the Messiah or claiming to be forerunners of the Messiah, like there is a curiosity about, okay, like, <laughs> tell us about right. that. Like, what, right. like, where do you fit into the story that, that we have? And so I don't really necessarily read this adversarial. I don't think you have to read this as adversarial in either direction. Yeah. Like, that yeah. they're aggressively coming at John or that John is being aggressive in his response at this, you know, at this I, point. Yes, I totally would agree with you. And I actually think, I think the fact that there was this sort of lurking question of the, the, the idea of the Messiah was on people's minds. Yeah. Seems clear enough because the, the priests and the Levites who, I mean, we might assume are interested in the idea of immersion, of ritual immersion, because that was sort of a category of purity. Like that's how I'm thinking of baptism as, as ritual immersion. Because they're coming from the realm of, you know, questions of purity and impurity that would yeah. exist in the temple where they work. But they don't say, are you the Messiah? <laughs> they say, who are you? Yeah. And his answer is, I'm not the Messiah. Right. So yeah. it's like, th- there's this like background conversation, you know, that's. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's such a fascinating response. And you were pointing out the word testimony or witness. John gave testimony to them and his testimony is I'm not the Christ. Like he goes on then later to, uh, to talk about a positive, like the Christ is coming. Right. But his first testimony is no, it's not me. And it's interesting that that's his immediate and negative response is I'm not like, it's not here's who I am. It's here's who I'm not. Yeah. Right. Like, I know that you think that I'm this person because I'm doing this thing, but I'm not. And I, and the fact that it uses, you know, the verb confessed, he did not deny it. He confessed that he was not the Messiah. So the confessions here, so he says, I'm not the Christ. And then they say, Mm -hmm. well, are you Elijah? And he says, no. And then are you the prophet? And he says, no. Can you give us some background about like why Elijah, why the prophet? Like, what is that all about? I mean, so Elijah in in Second Kings, uh, Elijah it, it never said it never reports his death. Mm-hmm. the The end of Elijah's time on earth is just uh, he ascends into the heavens in this fiery chariot, and so interpreters sort of went pretty wild with that idea. <laughs> yeah. Um. And you know, still today in the Jewish community, there's a lot of conversation, sometimes playful and sometimes really serious, about Elijah coming back. Um, and this is picked up in the book of Malachi, where it it says that Elijah will return before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Yeah. And then, you know, to add a finer point to that, there came to be a belief that Elijah would herald the messianic age or the messianic arrival. And so, so if, if one, you know, encounters Elijah in the world, it means something's about to, yeah, something's about to happen. But I was I was really interested, given all that. I mean, isn't John sort of an Elijah figure in that way? Are you surprised his answer is no? Yeah, yeah. 
Because, I mean, he, he is styled, especially in other Gospels, he's kind of mm-hmm. styled like Elijah. He's a wilderness dweller. He, yeah. you know, he eats locusts and does all these sort of wildernessy things <laughs> like Elijah yeah. did. Uh, and so, like, to me, that's sort of a natural connection to say, like, actually, he is, you know, the, the coming of Elijah who heralds the arrival of the Messiah. And so, yeah, his no is distinguishing in some way the whole story from the expectation of how the story should go. He's just, yeah, I mean, his positive statement about who he is is a quotation from Isaiah 40, I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness. Yeah, so so he's connecting himself to the Hebrew scriptures and saying, I was prophesied, but I'm not prophesied in the sort of standard way that people are expecting. I'm prophesied in this other text that is actually not necessarily read that way in other traditions. I think I think we've talked about before how that is, you know, in Isaiah, it's an instruction to Zion to call out in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord. And here it's yeah. cry out in the wilderness, make straight the path of the Lord. And so John is connecting kind of in an unexpected way to a prophetic text. Right. Right. And still in a way that, that sort of heralds, you know, I think what you're, one of the things you're pointing to is there's a, there's a difference in that Isaiah quote. The question is, what is the phrase that, what is happening in the wilderness? Like, is it a voice in the wilderness or a way of the Lord in the wilderness? Right. And the Septuagint and the Hebrew text in the translations of those, they're, they're, they're different, right? The way um, that goes. So, so yeah, this is, another way that Isaiah could be heralding the coming of the Lord, but not, not, not like Elijah. When you put that together that way, like the way that it makes me think what's going on here is that this Elijah text, the prophet, by the way, is probably a prophet like Moses who is sort of referred to and early on in the book of Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. And so there was some sort of expectation that maybe there's another prophet like Moses, distinct from Elijah, who's who is coming in the day of the Lord. Right. And so the Jewish leaders come in with these kind of like, here's our framework for understanding what's going on. Mm-hmm. John is then saying, nope, that's not what's going on. There's a different thing going on. And it's also mm-hmm. connected to the Hebrew scriptures. Right. It's just right. not the thing you think is going on. So right. there's some kind of like, there's both a continuity and also a discontinuity. You who are leaders in the established religion don't even know to ask the right question. So, I'll, mm. mm-hmm. you know, you're sort of in the ballpark, but you're asking the wrong question. So let me tell you what, what it really is. Yeah. That's kind of how I'm putting that together. Does that seem reasonable to you or would you? That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. No, it. Yeah. And I love that their sort of ending question, the Jewish authorities ending question that is uh, just sort of a more spacious version of their first questions, you know, like, okay, here are the categories we know, and you've just given us a flat out no to all of these. (laughs) Like where we clearly should stop asking you yes or no questions (laughs) because you're just saying (laughs) no. Mm -hmm. But what do you say about yourself? Yeah. Like that's actually a really, that's a beautiful question to I love that that's a beautiful question what, what do you say about yourself it could be anything like it's got these big fuzzy edges I love that and it reminds us reminds me of a conversation we had 
I think it was last year, about the way that Eli approaches Hannah when she's praying mm. in the temple and he says, why are you in here? Why are you in here drunk? And mm-hmm. she says, oh, no, I'm not drunk. Let me tell you. And he, and he sort of approaches her one way. And then mm-hmm. when he adjusts and says, let me approach you differently, then the story opens up. Yeah. This is kind of like that, where they are approaching yeah. him with their preconceptions. And it just right. the story keeps shutting down. And it's when I love that when they say, what do you say about yourself? It opens up this whole, like the gospel opens up from there. Right. Yeah. It doesn't give him the terms with which he needs to reply to the question. Yeah. However he wants. So oftentimes, because I, I mean, one of the things I love in this little section is it's like, look, who, like, we got to give an answer to the people who sent us. So you get yeah. this, you get the impression that there are people back in Jerusalem who, you know, are like, have sent this delegation this to find yeah. out. You know, they're like, we don't actually. I mean, it's not that they don't care who he is, but like, they care right. because people have yeah. told them they need to go find out. Right, Literally. right. It's not that they they personally have such an agenda about it. It yeah. reminds me almost when like Moses is talking to the talking with God through the burning bush and is like, "What should I tell people?" You yeah. know, and God is cu- kind of coy <laughs> in yeah. God's answer. You know, like, you know, I will be what I will be. Tell them that's who sent you. Like, really, God, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the idea that I've been sent to find out who you are. So tell me on your terms who you are, and we'll we'll yeah. try that answer. Yeah. Your reference to Moses there reminded me that one thing is probably worth saying is when John keeps saying, I am not. Mm-hmm. One of the things that happens quite often, as we'll have occasion to see in the Gospel of John, is that Jesus says, I am. Mm-hmm. And he says it in ways that are often sort of suggestive that what he's doing is connecting back to Exodus 3 and the the great I am. Mm. And so when John says, I am not, that kind of is a little bit of a foreshadow of, it's a yeah. reference back to that Exodus 3 story, but a negative one, like I am not that. But it's preparing that. the way for that Jesus who will actually say, I am. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's really cool. It's a very poetic gospel. It is. It is really, really rich. Yeah. Yeah. So we spoke a little bit about John's positive reply in which he goes back to Isaiah 40. And they say, what do you say? And he says, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make the Lord's path straight, just as the prophet Isaiah said. When he gives that as an identity, we talked a little bit about how it connects him to Isaiah. But what do you think, like, when that, like, that's his self-identification, is that I'm that guy? What do you think that says? Like, what is he saying about himself? Or what do you take from that voice crying out in the wilderness? Make the Lord's path straight. You know, it's interesting because I don't know whether the audience that, whether, you know, whether the audience at that time would have been more familiar with that Septuagint version, the voice mm-hmm. crying out in the wilderness, or the, the Hebrew version of the text. So coming to it from my own familiarity with the Hebrew version of the text, which is, you know, calling the people to come back from exile, right? Yeah. And, you know, saying that, that, the way of the Lord through the wilderness, through the desert will be made straight. So like, don't be afraid to come back. And so it's, I mean, it's a, I don't know, it's a pretty beautiful and poetic flipping of that in some ways. I think that actually it's our, our job as, as humans in some way 
to make the path of the Lord easy and straight, you know, to roll out the red carpet, so to speak. I think it's a really lovely inversion. I love that. Yeah. So John's job is to make Jesus's path straight. And so by sort of by extension, you you said our job, which I think is interesting that Mm -hmm. one can see that as like, not just John's job, but people who want to make way for Jesus. Like our job can also be to make Jesus's ways easier in the world. Is that, is that where you were headed? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's how I read it, because if John yeah. is the voice crying out and what John is crying out is like the imperative, make yeah. straight the way of the Lord, then I th- yeah. he's talking to someone. Yeah. <laughs> but it's right. interesting to think yeah. about that question of like, what would that look like for for you and for me? Like if if we imagine that God can be active in the world, but there's some way that we can just tip the scales a little bit yeah. to make it a little more likely that... <laughs> The, the intended ends will come to be, what are the things that we can do? Yeah. I love that question. I don't know that, that John does make the path so straight for Jesus, though. It's a kind of a complicated path he has. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that, that's, yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. When you read it that way, and then you sort of put up, you know, you put like the people are now in the wilderness and the connection of the exile is, you know, I, I talk a lot about how, and I think this is really lovely coming off that Jeremiah text that we read just a couple of weeks ago, mm. where one of the things we talked about was getting too comfortable in the exile. Yeah. And maybe not realizing you're in the exile or maybe not realizing that you're in the wilderness. And when you've got these Jewish leaders coming from Jerusalem, you know, like they're in the center of religious authority they're coming from the establishment religion and John is saying in the wilderness, make straight the path or a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the path. And so then you get this sort of tension between Jerusalem and the yeah. wilderness. Yeah. Right. Cause the voice, right. So that, that John is in the wilderness, meaning outside yeah. the establishment. Yeah. And I'm always forever ref- reframing that as like a step, yeah. not as Judaism versus yeah. like whatever's yeah. out here. Because John's community was Jewish. Likely they were Hellenistic Jews. Like they were probably Greek speaking Jews, it seems. Mm-hmm. And so, I, but I think the tension that we feel is between the establishment religion in Jerusalem and the more marginalized Judaisms of not Jerusalem, right? And so we might think of this community as sort of. You know, another version of that might be the Dead Sea sectarians who were Jews who also felt alienated from the establishment religion. John's community may, may be in, in sort of in that category. But there's a sense that the real thing is going to happen on the margins. The real thing's not going to happen right in the center of religious authority yeah. where, where the, uh, the, the Jewish leaders have come from, where they've been yeah. sent from. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hi everyone, it's Bobby here from Bibleworm. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. Amy and I started Bibleworm a couple of years ago because we wanted to create a space where we could talk deeply about the Bible in ways that bring together our academic backgrounds in biblical studies and our deep engagement with communities and people of faith. We decided to make this resource free because we want everyone to have access to sound biblical scholarship that connects biblical faith to everyday life. 
we hope you're finding the podcast fits that need. That said, while the podcast is free, making it is not. Amy and I and the rest of Team Bibleworms spend a lot of time and energy studying, recording, and editing the podcast to make it freely available to the public. If you enjoy the podcast, and if you find yourself in a position to support our work, we hope that you will consider becoming a Bibleworm supporter for as little as $4 per month. For a bit more, you can also get early access to episodes, weekly liturgies, video Bible studies, join a monthly discussion group, and more. We realize not everyone is in a position to support the podcast, but if you appreciate our work and want to support us, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast for more details. Thanks so much for listening, and now back to this week's podcast. Okay, so when John has given them this response, then they have some follow-up questions. Yeah, uh, <laughs> rightfully so. That's yeah. good. Starting in verse 24. Those sent by the Pharisees asked, Why do you baptize if you aren't the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered, I baptize with water. Someone greater stands among you whom you don't recognize. He comes after me, but I'm not worthy to untie his sandal straps. This encounter took place across the Jordan in Bethany, where John was baptizing. All right, so their follow-up question is about ritual practice. Yeah. What do you make of this conversation about baptism being the sort of focal point for these religious leaders? I mean, I it, it makes me wonder what so you know what exactly baptism was and what it represented at that time yeah. and where it was happening. Yeah. So, you know, in in Jewish practice there is ritual immersion in water that is not doesn't doesn't have any like moral like cleansing of moral sin about it it's like a, a ritual state of ritual purity and impurity we don't use the word baptizing in in our word in our jewish world now we would say you're going to the mikveh you're immersing yeah. and so i don't i don't know if if that's the kind of practice that they're talking about and and my other question <laughs> is if you're like, why are you baptizing if you're not Messiah nor the Elijah nor the prophet? Yeah, I mean, clearly, so, I, I I assume someone was running these ritual immersions, and there wasn't another Messiah or Elijah or the prophet. So is is the question really like these things should be happening at the temple unless you have some kind of special status? Or yeah. I don't know. I don't know enough about what baptism looked like at that time for that community. Do you know more about that? Yeah, I mean, so I do. So baptism is always and everywhere has a multivalence to it as I mean, you're a ritual theorist. So that's one of the things that ritual theory talks about a lot is like pinning down the exact significance of a ritual Mm -hmm. is exceedingly Mm -hmm. difficult. I do think baptism has a cleansing sort of um, at least I don't know, p- part of the as- one aspect of baptism in this period is the cleansing ritual. And so I think that question that you're raising about who has the authority to sort of offer ritual purity mm-hmm. and ritual purity and moral purity, which are very distinct. I don't know if they're very distinct, but they are distinctive in the Hebrew Bible, and especially in Leviticus. Yeah. yeah. 
by the New Testament period, ritual and moral purity have sort of become a little bit of an amorphous blob a little more. Mm, okay. The distinctions are not quite as clearly made. So who has the yeah. authority to offer ritual purification? Who has the authority to offer moral purification? Mm-hmm. I also think there is an element of baptism in this period that's a, an initiation rite. We see this at Qumran and elsewhere, that mm-hmm. you're sort of like when you are baptized, you are entering into some kind of a community. You have committed mm-hmm. yourself to some kind of a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And so it, the way that I read this about, like, why do they say, like the, the, the implication in verse 25 is that like it would be fine if you were baptizing if you are either the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet. Yeah. Or, you know, like the only reason I can think that that would be okay is because like, there's the initiation of a new community and those are like the legitimate people who can initiate new communities. And you yeah. just got done saying you're not one of them. Right. And so right. I tend to read their question having the edge in that, in that way. But I think you can read it as having this question about who has the authority. Mm-hmm. I think, I think those are in, intricately uh, related. Mm-hmm. Now that makes so much sense. And it's so funny because I, you know, I came to this text thinking like, yeah, so you, you ritually immerse in Jewish tradition like with, for folks who observe this practice, like, you know, not everybody does, but on a regular basis, just sort of along with the, the daily lives, you know, certain situations require that you go dunk in the mikveh. And it's just, you know, it's not like a once in a lifetime situation, but you also would do it if you were converting to Judaism. So like Uh in that way, it does already, you know, I shouldn't say already because it's thousands of years later, but <laughs> it does also have that multivalence. Not There's not an understanding of it washing away some kind of sinfulness, but there is, just as you described, this sense of like you are joining a new, co- you are joining a community. You are starting anew in some way. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. That's a lovely connection. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, in both cases, there is a question of religious authority, like who has the authority to offer purification? Mm-hmm. And also, if you're, if, if this is an initiation, an initiation rite, and it doesn't have anything to do with the religious establishment in Jerusalem, then you're initiating people into some kind of fringe movement that is beyond the control of the religious establishment. And so it's interesting then that the religious establishment is saying like, hey, what, what are you doing? Like, you don't have the right to do this. Seems to be the implication anyway. And so, you know, this, all these issues of like, who has the authority to convey purification? Also, like, who is in charge of this movement that people are joining? Like, you can, you can sort of feel the sense of threat a little bit to the authority mm-hmm. of the people who are established in Jerusalem as religious authorities. Yeah. But then John's answer to that, which I think is so... F- is fascinating and unfolds just over the course of this reading, but I baptize with water Mm -hmm. and, and he doesn't directly say yet that's not the real baptism or something, you know, (laughs) something to that effect. But it's, I I just think, I think it's so like, it's just this, like, it's like the first part of a thought and it leaves the second part open until, you know, a little bit later, but it's just water y'all. Yeah. Calm down. Yeah. You know, like in some ways he's, he's performing this ritual, but also saying this is not the real, it's not the real ritual. Yeah. That's really interesting. And it down is downplaying John's authority again. And at the same time, he's also 
gesturing. He's saying like, y'all don't need to be this worked up about me because it's just yeah, water. Yes, yes, And then yes. immediately he says, yes. but you do yes. need to be worked up yes. about something else. For sure. Who is like yes. here among you, which I think is so fascinating. Like, yeah, I don't know if you, I don't know if we're meant to envision like in this crowd of people, like he's someplace or yeah, uh, just, just like around and about. Yes. Who has not been revealed yet, but there, there is both a like calm down and also, <laughs> yeah. but you do need to be worked up. Just not about right. this. This is what thing. the thing you think is your problem is not your problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. There's someone who is categorically different. One of the things I think we're recognizing maybe, cause you know, I mean, this conversation is familiar from last year when we read Luke's version mm-hmm. of this same encounter. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that's interesting about the gospel of John is that John doesn't actually baptize Jesus. And you don't actually even get a story about Jesus being baptized. Maybe that's what's getting ready to happen in the next section we haven't read yet, yeah. but but maybe not. And so whereas the synoptic gospels tend to have a sort of moment where Jesus somehow receives initiation himself or receives... Yeah commissioning by John, John the Baptist, the gospel of John gets rid of all of that. And it almost is trying to sideline the role of John the Baptist a little bit to say, actually, John the ba- what John the Baptist is up to is really not that important, right? <laughs> like yeah. the next yeah. thing is the important thing. It's just an interesting dynamic in this, in this gospel. That's really interesting. And it's really helpful to me to remember not to import or to be cautious yeah. in importing things from the synoptic gospels, because it's just one of those questions where like, is it foolish to not fill in information I'm supposed yeah. to have? Or is it, this was not put in there for a reason. Yeah. So I need to, I need to hold that. I need to hold on to that. I think that's right. And uh, like my students in my classes who come out of Christian traditions have a really hard time with that. People who come in from other traditions or come in without any religious background or have never read the New Testament, they actually find that quite easy, right? Because they don't don't have this sort of gospel blob in their head. But for people who have grown up hearing the stories, and especially who have grown up just sort of hearing stories that are sort of read from here and there in the Bible every week, Mm -hmm. you just end up with a a gospel blob. Yeah. And so (laughs) you import without even realizing you're doing it. You import just like you're saying. But it's interesting to watch the way this story develops. If you think, as most scholars do, that Mark is the earliest gospel, the synoptic, Luke and Matthew are the sort of middle, historically in the middle ground, and John is the latest. What happens to the story of Jesus's baptism is in Mark's gospel, it just says, John baptized Jesus. Mm-hmm. In Matthew's gospel, John says, hey, Jesus, I'm not worried, worthy to baptize you. And Jesus says, look, it's fine. And then John baptizes Jesus. In John's gospel, John says, I'm not worthy to baptize you. And then the story's not told at all. So you get this kind of interesting trajectory where we went from sort of, it's no big deal if John baptized Jesus to like, no way are we going to tell a story in which John baptizes Jesus. That's really interesting to biblical, to New Testament scholars, both because probably historically it means that John did baptize Jesus. And so we have a story of what later comes to seem problematic, which doesn't seem problematic. So probably it just was what happened. Yeah. But then as you move along, you get this kind of like more developed idea that actually 
Jesus either doesn't need to be baptized or there's no one who could possibly baptize him, which yeah. is what we seem to be getting right here. That is very interesting. And I think fits in a really interesting way with, with all the concern we've already seen in John about John is not the Messiah. John is not, you know, don't be confused yeah. <laughs> about the relative power of John the Baptist. Yeah. Yeah. I think that this gospel is so clearly trying to do that. Don't confuse the one crying in the wilderness with, with the Lord whose paths are being made straight. Okay. I just got this image in my head of, um, you remember, all right, we're, we're not exactly the same vintage of video games we played when we were kids, but, but maybe you played these <laughs> no. where they were terrible video games, but you would like be a character and you could walk up to other characters and talk to them. And they would just give you some weird hint for like whatever mystery you're supposed oh, to be solving. I love those games. Yeah. And they would just say whatever they say, like, and you know, yeah. but the, like, I'm getting that kind of vibe from John the Baptist. Like he's there in this story so that you'll <laughs> go that. talk to him. Yeah. But he's, if he's not baptizing Jesus, like he's not actually doing such a critical thing. He's more just like the guy by the river and you talk to him and he <laughs> says <that>. like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll give you the, this next piece of your puzzle. Yeah. I used to play this game, which sounds like what you're talking about. I don't even know. That was called King's Quest. Yeah. And that was exactly what it was. There was like a little pixelated guy who would walk around yeah. and you would encounter, you know, and then you'd like look under the Right, rock and you can and like choose what to do. And it's like, talk to the water carrier or continue on your journey or, you know, whatever. And so you got to talk to everybody. Like, how could we you? talk to the back? <laughs> you know? I know. Yeah. And see what they say. Talk to the, I love that. I go back and play those games actually every once in a while. Like I play nice. them like maybe every three or four years. I just relive my relive my childhood. <laughs> but I forget how they work, which makes me a little worried about my cognitive <laughs> abilities. When I'm like, wait, am I supposed to talk to this John guy or or am I not? The answer well, is that's yes. What keeps it it keeps it interesting. If yeah. you remembered everything, then it'd be boring to go back and play. Yeah, no, that's true. What do you make of this line where John says, "I'm not worthy to untie his sandal straps." Um, okay. My simple minded answer is I'm not worthy to be his servant. Like the most menial kind of service that could be offered is to untie someone else's sandal strap. Yeah. It does have me thinking now because we were already just talking about the, the story of the burning bush. If there's any sort of tie into that, you know, remove your sandals thing, but I don't know what exactly that would be. Yeah. I think I'll go with, I'll go with, with option A. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's the most uh, apparent meaning is like, what is the most menial relationship you could have with somebody would yeah. be, I'm the person who. You're the sandal untier. Yeah. And John that's is saying, job. I'm not even worthy to be that person. Yeah. That, I think that makes, I was, I was curious whether there was some other resonance that you would pick up from your back, from your background. I think that's probably it. And if you are a reader of the Gospel of John, you will maybe have a foreshadowing here of John 13 in which Jesus himself washes the feet of all his disciples. Mm. And so you get this sort of interesting, John's not worthy to mess with Jesus's feet, but Jesus is humble enough to wash the feet of his followers. You can kind of start to see these arcs across the gospel in ways that develop. I love that. I love that. Yes. It really sort of underscores, like here, it's sort of reminding you of the way the power structures work (laughs) and then Jesus will mess with it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so here we have this 
yeah, the religious authorities out in the wilderness and they're questioning John and John saying, I'm not even worthy. So you've got this already here in this first chapter, these power structures that -hmm. are getting all flipped around and and that's going to continue to be a theme that develops in this gospel. Yeah. Okay. So picking up in verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one about whom I said, he who comes after me is really greater than me because he existed before me. Even I didn't recognize him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be made known to Israel. John testified, I saw the spirit coming down from heaven like a dove and it rested on him. Even I didn't recognize him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, the one on whom you see the spirit coming down and resting is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this one is God's son. When you read just those verses together, the re-emphasis of I didn't recognize him is so, like it just sort of stands out. Like even I didn't recognize him. What, why, what do you do with that sort of John being, he's just like, I didn't even know who he was. Seems to be key here for John. What do you do with that? It does, but I also don't, I don't understand it on a sort of surface level because he, he, it starts out by saying that he saw Jesus coming to him and he announced, oh, there he is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I guess I don't understand how those two sentences go together yeah. unless, you know, my translation of 31 is I myself did not know him. So it was like, I didn't know what, I guess I didn't know what to expect, but I, you sort of know it when you see it. Is that how you read that? Yeah, I, so I read this as John has had a past experience. It is, Mm. you are noticing something that is a problem in this text. And I, I, I think that that is worth wrestling with a little bit. Like what I took from it is John then says, I saw the spirit coming down. So now John is relating an experience that he had in the past. So in the past, I didn't recognize Jesus, but I had this experience where I saw the dove and hey, there's that guy. There he is again. Oh, I see. I get it. That's the way I make sense of it, but I don't know if that's the only way to make sense of it. Mm -hmm. No, I think that, I think that does make sense. This, yeah. So this, this part from verse 31 on sort of is relaying something that that relaying something that happened in the past that the gospel of John doesn't tell us as it's, doesn't yeah. narrate as it's happening. I think mm-hmm. that's that's the way that makes sense to me. So when I first met him, I didn't recognize him either. Mm-hmm. But then I saw this thing happen, and, and now I, I do recognize him. So I yeah. can tell him. I can tell you that's him. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This line about the I didn't recognize him reminds me of what we read in the prologue in verses nine and ten. The true light that mm-hmm. shines on all people was coming into the world. The light was in the world, and the world came into being through the light but the world didn't recognize the light is mm. the CEB translation. Yeah. 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 And like when we read that in the prologue, it sounded really judgy. And maybe, I mean, maybe it's supposed to sound really judgy. Like here's Jesus, but the world doesn't recognize him. But then here's John the Baptist, whose very job it is to like make straight the path of Jesus, who says, I didn't recognize him either. It's yeah. kind of interesting to me. Yeah. And there's a sense of like, there's no way you, there's no way you could like, yeah. You don't have to feel badly about that, yeah. but I'm going to tell you, I'm right. going to tell you who it is. Yeah. 
So the, the trick then is to listen to the people who are telling you who he is more than it is some sense that you ought to just be able to recognize it for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Mm -hmm. Do you understand? So this starts with the next day, right? So that interaction with the priests and Levites is over. Does John have an audience? Who is John talking to? The way that I read that, but it is, it is not in the text is that the, Religious leaders, the delegation from Jerusalem is still there. Mm-hmm. And so John is like, it, a day has passed. Yeah. And now John is saying, oh, that guy I was telling you about yesterday, there he is. Yeah. I think it would be entirely possible to read it that those folks have gone home. And so John is just saying this to like the hoi polloi who are, who yeah. are gathered yeah. around. Yeah. It's a little weird if John has no audience. It is <laughs> like, a little weird. But I mean, John's a little weird. So, yeah. you know, maybe he's just having a, oh, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talking to myself. How do you read it? I mean, I, I guess I initially read it as um, not necessarily be, I, I don't, I guess I read it as a question. I mean, yeah, it does seem like he's got to have some audience. Maybe it'll become clear later whether or not the religious authorities were present for this part. Uh-huh. I will tell you, honestly, my first, my first reading of that first verse was to introduce someone as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <laughs> I think it's, it, it felt like kind of a rude introduction. Like here's the animal sent by God to be sacrificed. Yeah. Like I, w- I wouldn't like to be introduced that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that line is such an important line and I'm, and I'm curious what you make of it, which is not, this is not what I was expecting you to say, but yeah, so this is <laughs> the first rude, time. That's rude, John. You, it's yeah. your inner monologue. Don't say that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, so we, we've had Jesus introduced to us in the prologue already as the mm. word and the light and the life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's the first time Jesus is being introduced as a character to the other characters in the gospel or somebody. And this mm-hmm. is the introduction that he gets, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Clearly, that's an important thing. Like, this is going to be an important identity for Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you're I know. right. Where does that land? I know. It's a, I mean, so my thoughts went to the Paschal Lamb yeah. and, I don't know, maybe the Suffering Servant. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? So you're the first one you said there was the Paschal lamb. If you think that what John is saying is here's the Paschal lamb of the world, like what would that mean? Do you think to you? So, I I mean, I run into problems immediately with it, but if you're using a sort of purely sacrificial model, like, you know, the Paschal lamb kind of thing, I don't know, maybe Paschal lamb is not even a good, I mean, in the sacrificial model, in the sacrifice of an animal, and really more specifically, the blood that that comes from that allows for some kind of like cleansing of this sin that is like ambient sin that's sort of like blocking all the yeah. points of connection between God and humanity. And so it's, yeah, it, I mean, it's just a way to sort of clear clear the filter. And so I guess calling a a person a lamb who would 
take away sin, the idea of a lamb that takes away sin immediately sort of puts me in that, in that mindset. Although importantly here, I think it's not the sins of the world. It's the sin of the world. Yeah. And so it, it doesn't sound like this is something like you're periodically going to need a human lamb to, you know, re-cleanse the system. Yeah. It's, it sounds like it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's sort of like play using that worldview as a starting place, but as, as John seems to be doing, but, but tweaking it. Yeah. Okay. Now tell me how you read that. Part. I mean, though, so you put so much on the table there. That's so interesting and important. And I, I, I love all of that. The, where you ended up with, it is the sin of the world, not the sins of the world, I think is urgently important. And in my mind, I like where I like where you went with it. That it's like seems like a. I was gonna say one and done, which sounds a little trite. I was, <laughs> I was gonna say one and done too. I was like looking for other other words to use, but that's what yeah, came to my but mind. But like, so <laughs> this the blood of this lamb is going to obviate the need for the blood of other lambs on an ongoing basis. I think that I think there's something to that. Yeah, that it's sin and not sins to me also makes it less individualistic so it's not like the the blood of this lamb takes away your sins yeah it's it's sin more in the sense of like cosmic brokenness Mm. right this Mm -hmm. this idea that the power that sin has power over people which is very common in paul's letters and elsewhere there's a sort of cosmic force and when jesus the something about the this lamb takes away the power of that brokenness when you read the lamb takes away sins, one of the places you went, as I as I understood it, was was sort of the sacrifice of an animal in the ritual purity mm-hmm. sacrifices of the temple. My understanding of the Paschal lamb, and you might help me with this, would would be slightly different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Paschal lamb. So this does not say here comes the Paschal lamb that takes away the right, sins of the world, right? right? So you've got right. some uh, you've got some options about which lamb we're talking about. So you could right. read it that way. You could read it the Paschal lamb. In which case, now we're back in Exodus chapter twelve, where the Paschal lamb's blood is smeared over the doorposts of the Israelites, and so the angel of death mm-hmm. or whomever coming mm-hmm. through the camp of the Israelites sees the blood and says, "Oh, those are." Those people don't die. Yeah, those people those don't lines. die. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you read Jesus as a Paschal lamb, then his blood isn't necessarily like cleansing. Cleansing. It's like ap- apotropaic. Is that? Yeah. It's that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. It's protective, and so yeah. the blood covers over, you know, the metaphorical doorposts of people who believe in Jesus, and so death passes them by. Mm-hmm. And so like just that one sentence there, the lamb, like that one image, the lamb of God has, has so many resonances. You also yeah. mentioned the servant songs. Did you want to say yeah. anything about that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say about it. I don't know what to say about it. My mind is spinning from the first two options. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot in those two options. Yeah, I think that the key servant song is the one in Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, in which there is the line in uh, 53, 7, he was oppressed and tormented, but didn't open his mouth. 
like a lamb being brought to the slaughter, like a ewe silent before his shears, he didn't open his mouth. There's a sense in that Isaiah 52, 53, that some figure called the servant in Isaiah somehow takes on the burdens, the, the, the sufferings, the sins vicariously of, uh, of Israel mm-hmm. and is, is led away like a lamb to the slaughter. And so Jesus might be identified with that figure here, which just kind of introduced, like it's a, it's a shade on the same theme. Yes. A shade on the same theme and like sort of plugging into that same central metaphor, but already making the connection that like the lamb could be a person, you know, like pulling us a little bit away from the immediacy of, yeah. of a sacrificial model yeah. the way it was taking place. Yeah. In that same in same song, a couple of verses early in verse four, it was our sickness that he carried, our sufferings that he bore. And so we, we do have this sense in the, in the Isaiah text of vicarious suffering, uh, one who yeah. suffers on someone else's behalf, which is different, as you're saying, than the yeah. sense of purification or apotropaic protection. But here, here it's suffering so that others don't have to suffer. Mm-hmm. So just in that one line, here comes the Lamb of God we get all of those different resonances. One of the things I love about that metaphor is that you can't quite pin that down and say like, here's what John means, right? Like the lambness of Jesus covers enormous territory. Yeah. And then when we think about atonement and all these other kinds of theological ideas that will come out of this connection to the lamb, it's, there's not just one way of thinking about that that sort of captures it all. It's it's all of these different ideas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> John just keeps like piling on the references that that all have so many so many resonances. Yeah. We want to hang on to this idea about Jesus as the Lamb of God because it, it's going to come back at the end of John's Gospel in a really important way, which we can talk about when when we get there. Uh, but John's telling of the crucifixion is going to come back to this to this idea. John in verse 32, sort of, he seems to be recalling something that happened earlier. I saw the spirit coming down from heaven like a dove and rested on him. I didn't even recognize him. But, but the spirit had told me, the one you see the spirit on, that's him. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you make? What do you make of John's story there? I mean, the idea of being able to see some kind of spirit or presence of God in a dove-like form descending upon someone is is not familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Like the idea that you would see a spirit in the form of a bird. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that, that would that would be your sign that this was this was someone who you know, ranks ahead of you because he was before you, like, you know, in that way that I guess maybe connects to the word in the first part of this chapter. Yeah. (laughs) I guess I wonder how, how John knew that that's what that meant, but I guess that's how those things happen. It's like, you have, it's almost like, you know, I don't want to say crazy dreams because it makes it sad. I don't mean to be flip about it, but it's just like, sometimes you just know what something means, even if this wasn't, I'm not aware of any pattern of bird signs. (laughs) <laughs> that John would have known. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's probably right. So yeah, I don't know other literature that's like associates the Messiah with a with a dove. Mm-hmm. 
this text reminded me of when Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for Isaac mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he prays and he said, and God says the one, the, the woman who comes and offers to water your camels, mm-hmm. that's the one. Mm-hmm. And so there's a sort of pre-agreed sign. And then when the servant sees that woman, yeah. Rebecca, he's like, oh, you're the one. This reminded me of that, that God has sort of said like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to send a dove. Yeah. When you see that, yeah. you'll know. And then the, the although in the in the Rebecca story, it's Eliezer, their servant, who says, "Okay, how about this, God?" That's true. That <laughs> this is, true. is what the sign's going to be. Yeah. And then when it happens, he is like, "Okay, that must have been the sign." That is true. He he. Yep, you're right. But I think your point is taken. That yeah, sometimes you just you just agree. Yeah. There's a pre-agreed. <laughs> There's a pre-agreed sign. Mm-hmm. And here it's the one who sent me uh, said to me. And I'm assuming that that one yeah. who sent me has meant to be God there. I can't think of who else it, who else it would be. <laughs> My Uncle Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I think that's probably right. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting, like, just coming back to this recognition thing. To me, it's so interesting that John, John himself needed a pre-agreed miraculous sign in order to understand who Jesus was. He wouldn't have gotten it by himself. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's really important. I think that's really important. And the passage closes with the statement, this one is God's son. I mean, let's just load it all on there, right? Like, great. We have a, we had a lamb and now we'll just, we'll just go for the, go for the big money. We're just going to go to the son. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, that's a big jump. Yeah. For me. (laughs) can you say a little I mean I think I know what you mean but can you say a little more about that well I mean it's just like I like what you were saying last time like I'm trying to sort of take in each image and be like okay okay like let's stop like try to understand this and what are the resonances and like you know draw a little picture and like I'm just trying to understand all the resonances of the lamb of God and then the son of God just has this whole other yeah set of potential resonances. And then I, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to hold son of God together with lamb of God in my head and like how those worlds of resonances intersect with each other and, and, you know, affect each other and what that, I don't know, like that's a, those are both really big ideas and to figure out, you know, how they interact is, there's a lot to just like drop in there in the verse. And then <laughs> yeah. we're not going to go on reading, but the next, you know, the next verse is like the next day, like, yeah. <laughs> we're yeah. not, you know, we're not going to explain this right yeah. now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're not going to explain this right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, when you think about resonances of God's son, where does your head, like, what is the range of things that you, you could connect to out of God's son? Mm, that's a good question. I actually, it's funny now that you ask, I, I went immediately to like intersections between lamb and son, but you're right. We could just do son first. And my first thought is, you know, the idea of the, the chosen King, the anointed King that is, you know, sort of seen maybe as an adopted son of God, not in a way of like, you know, being a divine creature, but the, you know, specially chosen one Mm -hmm. who is in special relationship to God. And so, you know, that of course ties into the word, Mashiach, that the anointed one that becomes Messiah. And so there is, 
there, there is some, some connection across that plane. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, one could hear this is God's son and have that as this is a human creature who like yeah. other human people that we have talked about in the Hebrew scriptures has a particularly close relationship to God, but is not in any way divine. Yeah. And yeah. so when, when John says this one is God's son, you know, I think it depends on maybe who you imagine hearing, yeah. uh, but one could hear that as not as exactly as an ordinary claim. Cause it's still saying, you know, this is God's specially chosen one. And it probably in this period is thinking about the anointed one who is the Messiah. But it could be heard without saying this is a divine being. Yeah. That said, John has just finished saying, he is greater than me because he existed before me, which I think does not simply mean like he's older than me. He was I older. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Elsewhere yeah. in uh, John's gospel, Jesus is going to say before Abraham was, I am, which is a, a whole other thing. But we've also already seen in the prologue, like we who have read the prologue know that what John means here is he is eternally existent with God. And so that God's son, I think, like for those who have read the prologue, when you read God's son, you think, oh, this is saying like Jesus is in some way God. But there is a way of hearing that to people who have not read the prologue or to characters who are in the story where Jesus's identity as sort of preexistent God is still kind of mm-hmm. shaded here. It's not, it's not mm-hmm. as obvious mm-hmm. as it, as it yeah. could be. I, I, I mean, I also hearing that the lamb of God and the son of God put together. And again, like my mind is like jumping ahead because I sort of, I know some of how this story ends, Yeah, <laughs> but I can't help thinking about the Akedah. Yeah. The, the binding of Isaac, the near sacrifice of Isaac. Yeah. But it, but it, again, it's this weird, like it sort of pulls on some of that, but in this version, like the, the animal, the sacrifice, you know, in, in Genesis yeah. 22, it's the ram, the sun and the ram are conflated. And yeah, in some ways, like God and Abraham are conflated. Yeah. Like it's, I like, I feel like it sort of harnesses some of that story, but, but twists it in in a frankly very uncomfortable way for me, but (laughs) it's a, a, but a very powerful, very powerful way. I love that connection, Amy. And, you know, we just read that story a couple of months back. And so it, in the narrative lectionary flow, it is in the, is in the back of our heads. And maybe as you're doing, it should be moved to the front of our heads a little bit. And you know, that, if you do that, I think part of where you're pointing is there's some sense in which what God has asked Abraham to do in Genesis 22 mm-hmm. is not different than what God is now in the process of doing to God's yeah. own son in the gospel of John, mm-hmm. which is intriguing and profound and problematic in all the ways. Mm-hmm. And you're exactly right, which is a connection I had not necessarily made that when we've just said Jesus is the lamb, in the in the Genesis 22 story, the lamb is the thing that keeps the son from having to be sacrificed at the end. Mm-hmm. But when you say the lamb is the son, now you've got no way out of the story. Right. You've got no way out of the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's no, there's no God apart from the father yeah. to say, don't do it. Yeah. 
you know, like the, the ways that that story that we, that it doesn't have to happen are from being pulled away. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I'm going to have to sit with that for a minute. I had not put all that together for myself in, in that way until you, until just now. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to sit here. <laughs> we're just going to sit here. We're going to sit here and think. <laughs> uh, well, I wish that we had time to just sit here and think, but alas, Bible worm cannot alas. go on forever. <laughs> in silence. Now we will be silent for 30 minutes. While Amy, I will say that the question I normally ask you at this moment in the podcast is for you and your community, what do you do with this text? And, you know, now that we're reading the gospels, that question no longer the is the right is question. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. you know, I, here's the, I have two versions of this question. One version is when you read the text and connect it to contemporary life, what resonances do you see? The other question that I could ask is when you read this text with me, knowing that you have other Christians reading along with us, what do you hope we take from this text? Mm. So either one of those questions, or if you want to frame it a different way for yourself, then that would be fine too. No, I, I appreciate all, I appreciate those tweaks and framing, you know, what what's rising to the top for me in this text in some ways i feel like came up when we were talking about that isaiah quote the difference between god will make the way easy you know straight straight for you the way of the god will be made easy for you coming through the desert to we are called to make the way of god easy yeah and i feel like so i guess the message i'm coming i'm coming out of this with is sort of like use your limited power <laughs> You know, like th- there are things we can all do to tip the scales in the way that we think the world needs to be tipped. And part of this too is coming from John the Baptist's insistence about really how inconsequential <laughs> he is in this whole equation. Yeah. And, you know, that he keeps saying, I baptize with water. He says three times, I baptize with water, you know, like clearly reminding us and like in a very suggestive way, like it's just water. But at the same time, you know, I I was sent here to baptize with water. Like, even though what I'm doing is not really the thing, there's a reason that I was sent here to do yeah. this thing. And like, and so I guess I'm really thinking about like, what is, as we all realize constantly <laughs> daily, the limitations of what yeah. we can actually bring about. It's not nothing. Mm-hmm. Like we, we have a, we have a role in these big epic stories and it might be less than baptizing with water, but it's, I don't know. We're all, we're all part of, we're all part of these big epic narratives and we need to, we need to do the part that is ours to do. I love that so much. And that line, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. You know, there's a sense in which John has a very yeah low assessment of his own role in what is going on. And then I mentioned that Jesus is going to pick that up later on Mm -hmm. and wash the feet of people. Like Jesus himself is going to sort of take a low position in what is going on. So I love that connection of doing the thing that's ours to do, even if that thing does not seem very important. Like it's the unimportant seeming things that are the things that make the whole thing possible. I love that. Yeah, yeah. My head also went to sort of the limitations of John 
in a different way, and is, is this issue of recognition and the number of times that John has said that I didn't recognize him. I didn't know who he yeah. was. He sort of says, I wouldn't even have known who he was when I like encountered him directly and that little dove flew <laughs> down on him, right. except that somebody, presumably God, had told me ahead of time to look for the guy with the dove. Yeah. And, you know, when we had read the prologue last time, that line in, in verses 9 and 10 that said the world didn't recognize him sounded really edgy and judgy to me. Like, we get mm-hmm. it, but they don't. Mm-hmm. And what has happened here is the text has said, even John doesn't get it, Mm -hmm. which suggests to me then that we all ought to position ourselves in the doesn't get it category, Mm -hmm. which is to say God is often up to things in the world, which we do not recognize. Mm -hmm. And John, who people think maybe is the Messiah, maybe is Elijah, maybe is the prophet, he didn't recognize it either. So like, why on earth would we think we get it? And instead of sort of being a little bit full of ourselves that we recognize and other people don't, to think instead, like, what are the ways in which God is up to things in the world, which we are unable to recognize? And what do we need to do to sort of get into a position where we can recognize what God is up to, which in this text seems to be something like paying attention like in some sort of meditative, prayerful way where we open ourselves up to the possibility of being surprised that God might be up to something that we would not ourselves have seen. And that sort of removes us from the picture as being the ones who are like so smart or so insightful that we get it and puts mm-hmm. us perpetually in the position of being the ones who who don't get it. And yet God can reveal to us what God is up to if we pay attention. Yeah. I love that. I love the sort of humility and openness and curiosity that that invites all of us into. And it's, it makes me think too, you know, not that the priests and Levites are held up as good examples in this text generally, but here when they shift their question out of their specific worldview and just say, what do you say about yourself? Exactly. You know, if we can bring more of that question into the world, there's a lot, we'll, we'll, there's a lot that can be revealed to us, Yeah. but we have to let go of whatever expectations we have of what it can look like. Yeah. I love that. And I love reading those characters as ultimately being curious Mm -hmm. and they're open to possibilities. And I will have to see as the gospel develops, like what they do with those possibilities. But in this moment, in this text, being open to the possibility, I think that's a really nice reading of them. All right, Amy, next week, we are going to stay in that. We'll still be in the same chapter. And the <laughs> next <been>. verse. <laughs> yeah. No. Picking up with the uh, the rest of the gospel, the first chapter of the gospel of John. <laughs> I was like, next week, the we'll rest, do the of, the rest of the gospel of John. <laughs> Great. It's an extended episode. <laughs> so we lingered for a while over the first <laughs> 34 verses. And now we're going to do the remaining. Yeah, yeah. So we'll finish up John chapter one next time with Good. verses 35 to 51 and the call of Jesus's first disciples. Alrighty. I look forward to it. All right. See you then. Take care. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Bible Worm podcast for details. 
Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are grateful to our many supporters for helping us to keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us next time when we'll be reading John 1, 35-51, in which Jesus calls his first disciples. Until then, keep on digging.